Welcome to the Church of 1122. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, grab them and go to Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 2. Today we're going to talk about how to fight, how to fight. And uh, as you're turning there, a couple of things about our baptism service that follows this immediately. Um, the Dolphin Plaza at Hannah Park is already full because we, you know, the other two-thirds of our church is already there. And so as you guys, when, when our service here is over, you'll, you know, hopefully you brought all your stuff and you'll head straight to Hannah Park. And we need you to not park on the grass. We have some police officers there helping everything go smoothly. And we need you to park in either parking lots. One, two, three, five, six, seven. Just don't park in four. Four is full. Dolphin Plaza is full. Park in one, two, three, five, six, or seven. We will have folks there to help you get parked and then get out to the beach. And I promise you'll beat me there. And once I get there, we'll get started. And uh, we'll be there baptizing um, more than 200 people today. So it'll take a long time. And then bring your tents and coolers and chicken and bring me something because I don't have time to stop uh, to get lunch. So bring me some food. I'll stop by your tent, and we'll tailgate Jesus together. Isn't that kind of neat? That's what today's all about. All right, so this morning, we are going to talk about how to fight. And every couple fights, and some of you fought on the way here, didn't you? I mean, let's just be honest. Like, how does he know? Because it's Sunday. And uh, there's nothing like a good pre-church fight that just really stir your affections for Jesus. And then you get to the door, and like, how you doing there? Oh, we're just blessed. Just so blessed. <laughs> Can't even stand each other right now. Good. You'll be. Hopefully, we'll resolve it by the end. So, <clears throat> here's what I need you to know, though, um, that, that, your, uh, that your, your life story is more important than your love story. And actually, sometimes the reason you fight is, is part of God's sanctifying process in you. That sometimes God lets you walk through conflict with your spouse so that he can grow in you the things that he needs to grow in you. Because quite honestly, um, am I more... Am I more like Christ when Gretchen's just serving me and being awesome? Not really. I mean, even if a pagan would just respond in kind when I don't have to really do anything for our marriage, but she's just being awesome to me, and I think, oh, this is awesome. But there are times when I've really got to hunker down in Christ to be more loving and patient and kind and forgiving and those kinds of things. And so it's really in those times when we fight that God is doing this sanctifying work in us. In fact, marriage is the left lane of sanctification. I did not know how selfish I was until I got married. I didn't know how arrogant I was until I got married. And so if you're married, you're going to want to take a lot of notes. If you're single, you're going to want to take even more because your marriage is not what you think it's going to be. Amen from the married people? Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to pick it up in chapter 5, verse 2. This is her talking. Remember last week we did the honeymoon? Remember all of that? Well, here, this is shortly after the honeymoon. She says, I slept, so she's in bed asleep, but my heart, meaning Solomon, was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. So here he is, late at night, knocking on the door. And here's what he says to her. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. What do you think this brother wants to do? He don't want to talk about the checkbook, does he? No. He's knocking on the door late at night. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew. It means he's been working all night. My locks, meaning his hair. His hair is drops of the night. And she says, here's how she responds. She says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on again? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them again? In other words, that's Hebrew for not tonight, honey, I have a headache. (laughs) So here we are, the first verse after their honeymoon, and we have a conflict. He wants sex, she wants sleep. Right? This this book was written 3,000 years ago. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved by God, so that in 2014, we could talk about your marriage and conflict in your marriage. We get one chapter on how to have great sex in the honeymoon, and we get two chapters on how to fight. Does God know what he's talking about? Come on, people. So read your Bibles. And so essentially what's happening here is they're they're essentially both being selfish. They really are. And he's coming up, knocking on the door, and he's thinking, oh, my sister, my bride, my beautiful one, my dove, Right? I know this how, how this is going to work, because all throughout the book, every time he's, he's approached her this way, she's always sp- responded well. See, one of the things, husbands, that, that we kind of think, sometimes we think that our wives have like a secret combination, and as soon as you figure out the combination, like one date and these words and shazam, but then it doesn't always go that way, does it, right? He wants to say amen so bad right now, he can't stand it, wives, but he knows that might mess his chances up tonight, and so... He comes in being all sweet, and then she's like, seriously, I, that made me get up out of the bed. I had to put on my robe and put flip-flops on. I don't even you know, think I'm just going to go to sleep. And you know in his mind, he's going where all of us are going. In his mind, he's thinking, what is wrong with you, woman? 
You don't understand how hard I work and provide. And I'm out there running the whole kingdom. That's why I'm sweating like this. And all I need is a little Angetti. Don't you remember the Angetti you're supposed to provide from chapter 2? And, and I'm coming here late. Do you know how many, you know how many women would line up from here to Egypt for me to rat-a-tat-tat on their door? And she's thinking, well, you can just line them up then because you ain't coming home after I'm bed to sleep. You can get on home on time. and You got to come to bed smelling like two-cycle oil and just think you can rub my back and shazam, uh-uh. So you got to go to seminary to know that's all in there. That's it. So we got a conflict that he wants sex, she wants sleep. And essentially, they're just really thinking about what they want. Do you realize <clears throat> that, that all couples fight? Okay, all couples fight. And if we had time, we don't have time, but if I were to ask you to each one at a time get up here and talk about the last time you got in a fight with your spouse and say, describe it for us, please. I know how it would start. <clears throat> you would start out this way. Well, my wife, and then you start talking about her, or my husband, and you start talking about him. But do you know what the Bible says the cause of quarrels and fighting is? James, the brother of Jesus, he wrote a book, and, and in James chapter 4, James asked this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among us? And again, we go, she does, or he does. He gets home too late, and he's saying she locks the door. And then he answers his own question, which is really rare in the Bible, isn't it? Most of the time in the Bible, they'll ask a question and then tell a story about goats, and you've got to figure it out. But right here in James, it just tells you like it is. What causes fights and quarrels among us? Here it goes. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, you know what the only common denominator in every fight you've ever been in is? It's you. Uh Uh-oh. And then he goes on to say, you desire and you do not have. That the reason that you and I have fights and quarrels is because you want something and you don't get it. Doesn't even sound very spiritual, does it? But the reason that you and your husband or you and your wife fight is because you want something and you don't get it. And you might go, yeah, but it's my right. Okay, you want something that you think is rightfully yours. And you don't get it. And you, or you might go, well, yeah, but I deserve it. All right. However you want to phrase this, you, you're not getting what you think you deserve. But that's what James says. That, that the reason that you fight is because you don't get what you want. Now, that, if you could just understand that, when you are in a fight with your spouse, if you could just time out for one second and step back and go, okay, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? Because can you imagine, I mean, if you were just in a shouting match with your wife or husband, I mean, you're just bringing it up and getting historical, and your mama back, and your daddy, and you know, you're good for nothing. I mean, you were really into it, and then right in the middle, you were like, all right, time out, wait, listen. The reason I'm angry here is because I'm not getting what I want. I think your spouse would just laugh at you. But are you six years old? It would change everything. And so when you begin to realize that the fights and quarrels are caused because of you, because of me, and you want something, and you don't get it. Then, when you begin to realize that, then what you can do is that a conflict in your marriage can actually be an opportunity for you to draw closer instead of drawing lines in the sand. You see, a good Christian marital conflict is like a good, friendly tennis match. Like one person just lobs it on over the net, and the other person just lobs it right on back, okay? And then afterwards, you hold hand drinks lemonade. It's all good, right? Like you're not the enemy. But sometimes it, it, it kind of turns into abuse where one person lobs it over the net and then the partner just rushes the net and slams it back on him and says, get you some, and just overreacts. And that's abuse. The other one might be more scared when one partner lobs one over the net and the other one's not even playing anymore. And so all couples fight. And the reason that you fight is because of you. Because here's what happened. On the day you took a vow, what happened was... Uh, one wretched black-hearted sinner made a vow to be married to a wretched black-hearted sinner. And you get some wretched black-hearted sinners living together and sleeping together and sharing a bathroom together and all of those kinds of things together. You get two sinners together rubbing up against each other and there is a lot of friction. Why? Because you brought your depravity into your marriage. And so you really typically don't have marriage problems, you just got people problems. And you got two people, sinners, that need Jesus living together. And hopefully what happens is that iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. 
And hopefully that, that through the conflict, God can actually use it to be a sanctifying process in your life. But that won't happen until you first and foremost realize, hey, the problem here is I want something and I'm not getting it. And when you begin to realize that, that you're not getting what you want, then you can do what Solomon does here in verse 4. That instead of reacting to the situation, that you respond in love. And that's the fundamental difference. Because when you react to the situation, then all you're doing is increasing the problem. So even if you've been sinned against, even if your spouse is selfish or whatever they do against you, and then you just react to the situation, it, it, essentially what you're doing is they act and then you just react. You just reenact what they have acted upon you. And hate begets hate. And yelling begets yelling. And ignoring begets ignoring. And it does not cultivate that abiding, intimate kind of relationship when you react to the situation. You know, I've never ever in my whole life have met a couple, like maybe an older couple, that, that was just walking and like that deep, abiding, marital kind of love. And I go, what's the secret? And had a, a, a woman respond and say, well, you know what? Back in 1982, he called me this name. And when he cussed me like that, it just began to stir an affection in my heart for him. Never, ever, ever, ever. But it was always the opposite. It's when we've been sinned against and we respond in love. So look what, look what Solomon does in chapter 4. He says, My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. And I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my finger with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. You see, you do not react to the situation, but you respond in love. And so what does Solomon do? He takes that latch on the locked door, that thing that actually barred him from his bride, and instead of kicking down the door like the king and saying, there will be no locked doors of my kingdom. No, instead of kicking down the door like he was on the SWAT team, instead he anoints the door with this sweet, fragrant myrrh. Much like Christ did for you and me. That when Jesus Christ shows up on this earth and instead of, in, instead of reacting to the way that we had sinned against God. Because think about that. You and I are sinners. Wretched, black-hearted sinners. That we're not, just, we're not just bad people that need to try to do better. But we were enemies of God. We had slapped the face of the Almighty God. And we deserved whatever He wanted to dole out on us. But He didn't react. You know what He did? He responded in love. And that very thing that separated him from his people, the cross, he anointed that instrument of death with the anointing oil of his blood that Christ demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, because the truth is this, when you fight, you can be right or you can be married. I mean, that's just the truth. You can be right or you can be married. And why do you say that? Because when Jesus showed up on this earth, he could have shown up as a just judge and decided to be right. Say, I'm perfect, you're a sinner. You're going to hell, peace, I'm going back to heaven. Not my fault, I didn't sin, not my problem, you handle that. But what did he do? He decided instead to submit himself to us, that'll make your head explode, that the almighty sovereign God actually submitted himself to us and he became a savior instead of just being right. And so instead of going sinner, 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 hell, 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 he said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay for your sin even though it's not my fault. And he went to the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he paid the sin debt for us. And so when you are in a conflict with your spouse, then what it means to respond in love is to do whatever it takes for the sake of reconciliation because that's what Jesus did for us. That he looked at us as enemies of the Most High God. And he did whatever it took to reconcile us unto the Father. That means he paid the full price on the cross. That whoever would receive him as Savior would be imputed with his righteousness. That we would be, that we would be reconciled unto God and then made ministers of reconciliation. So that when you fight with your spouse, it's an opportunity for you to love them like Jesus. And there's a lot of people in Duval County right now. And they were right and they are not married anymore. And so this is what he does. And then now notice. Notice her response in verse 6. She says, I opened to my beloved. But my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him but found him not. I called him but he gave no answer. You see, a grace-filled response wins the heart. A grace-filled response wins the heart. 
And when you fight, the, the, the goal is not to win the fight, but it's win the heart of your spouse. And so that's why you don't react, but you respond in love, that Christ-centered, gospel-saturated kind of love. And I have, I've got news for you, and some of you, it's going to rock your whole marriage. You ready for this? Do you know that your job is not to fix your spouse? I just heard a bunch of wives go, well, what am I going to do then? You know, so your job is not to fix your spouse. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Your job is not to sanctify your spouse. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. That you can't change them. In fact, I reviewed all of your vows in the room and you never vowed. You never promised that you were going to discipline and that you were going to fix your spouse. Your job is to love them and honor them and respect them and to value them. And so, listen... Wives, your job is not to fix your husband. And can I just tell you this too? You know what he needs from you? Here's what he needs. He does not need for you to tell him how to do it better. In fact, when he's got a problem and he comes home from work and he tells you, man, my boss is like a jerk, and you start telling him, well, here's what you ought to do. He don't want to even hear it. He doesn't have ears for that in that moment. He wants to know two things. They want to say amen so bad right now they can't stand it, but they're scared to. All right, I don't blame him. Here's what they want to know from you. They want to know that you're on their team and that, you th- and that you think they have what it takes. That's what they need from you first. I'll illustrate it this way. I, I, me and two pastor friends of mine, uh, we, we went to Africa for a couple of weeks, years ago. We've been going away from our families for a bunch of days, and, and we were coming back home to Jacksonville through Atlanta because you can't get to heaven without a layover in Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? And so we stopped in Atlanta, and, uh, and, our, and our bags were coming from some other country, you know. So, so our bags didn't make it through customs before we did, and so we, we were going to miss our flight because our bags got all hung up. And so all of us, and we're all pastors, and we're all in charge of, of pretty successful ministries, and so we all called home. And, and, and what, what begins to happen, listen, wives, when you try to fix your husband, when you try to, try to change him, it, it's really not your fault. It's because you are the daughter of Eve. And Eve was created to be the helper of Adam. And so you think you're helping. I know you do. You're not trying to ruin him. You, you really think you're helping. But when, when God cursed Eve, he said that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. That word desire doesn't mean like I want him. It means that that word desire means to overthrow. So what feels like helping to you feels like a hostile takeover to him. So when you go, well, here's what you should have done. He, he, he hears that like... Uh, you're an idiot, and here's what I would have done if I was in your place. That, that's what happens. And so there we are in the airport, and we've all got to call our wives and say, hey, we're not going to make this flight home to Jacksonville. And my two minister pastor friends call their wives. And look, these pastors love Jesus, and their wives love Jesus probably more than these two pastors, okay? And they call their wives, and they say, hey, babe, uh, we missed our flight because our bags got hung up, and we missed our flight. And then I can immediately hear on the other end, well, did you check for more flights? Well, did you get your bags? You probably checked them in the wrong way. Well, you, just that kind of, well, here's what you ought to do. As if the guys are going to go, well, we didn't know that. Well, I mean, these are grown men. They run successful ministries. They walk into the room and other pastors are like, oh, they're here. Let's take notes. And so, and again, what their wives were trying to do is help. But what it sounded like to them is you're too dumb to take care of yourself. So mama should have been there with you. Now, me and Gretchen have had this conversation about a hundred million times. Okay. A hundred million times. And so when she tries to tell me how to be the pastor here, I'm telling you in my in my carnality, I'll say, well, why don't you apply for the job? I bet they won't hire you. You know, I just, I'm telling you, you just don't have ears to hear it. So I called Gretchen. Hey, babe. Um, bags got hung up in customs. We're going to miss our flight to Jacksonville. And she went, and I could hear in the inhale, the daughter of Eve. <clears throat> just because we've had this conversation a lot, and I'm probably hypersensitive to it. She just went, oh, I want to see you so bad. So what are you going to do? You know what she was doing? She was just saying, I'm on your team. You have what it takes. And as soon as I know those two things, you know what my next words were? I don't know, baby. What should I do? All right, next. (laughs) So it's not that we don't need you. We need you. It's not good for man to be alone. They'll be stuck in Atlanta their whole lives. All right, we need you. But if you want full access, he needs to know, I'm on your team. I think you have what it takes. Um, husbands, I don't have a great example the other way, but you do whatever it takes to make her feel like the most valuable thing in your world. That's what you do. 
And that's what it's like to respond in love. And when you do that, it draws their heart to you. Now, what, since, since we know that our job is not to fix our spouse, so what Solomon does here is Solomon doesn't try to fix his wife. He leaves that up to the Lord, that the Lord will sanctify, the Lord will deal with her. And so, and I've got to tell you that because this next verse gets super weird if, if you don't understand that that's what this is talking about. Verse 7, the watchman found me, so she goes out looking for him. The watchman found me as they went about the city, and they beat me, and they bruised me, and they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. See, the watchmen during this time were the authority of God. So what, what Solomon says is, I'm going to leave the sanctifying up to the Lord. And so when two people get married... And you join together. A huge part of it is God is using you in the sanctifying process. Because you're never more like Jesus than when you are having to demonstrate love and mercy and grace. And the way you do it is not to fix your spouse. But that you have to be open and honest about your own junk that is within you. And so here is a tool. I didn't make it up. I don't know where I heard it from, but it is so stinking helpful, and it has been when Gretchen and I come into conflict. So when we're in conflict, I don't just back up and be like, all right, God, get her. No, that's not how it goes. (laughs) But you have to have these open and honest conversations, and here's the tool. When you feel like you've been sinned against or done wrong or whatever by your spouse, and it's simply this. You go, hey, babe, we need to talk. And whenever you hear we need to talk, we don't need to talk. You know, just the person that said that needs to talk. And then here's what you say. When you fill in the blank, I feel fill in the blank. That's it. That's the tool to begin that conversation. Now, one of the things you cannot say is when you fill in the blank, you make me feel because because that's not what you're saying at all. Because you are responsible for your own feelings. And essentially what you're saying in that statement is, listen, I've got my own junk. I've got some stuff in here. And the only thing that can come out of me has to be in me. So when you are late for work and you don't call and tell me, I feel like I'm not very valuable. Now, that's not your fault. That's me. That's in here. That's my insecurity that I have to deal with. Or guys might say to their wives, "Um, babe, when I'm telling a story in public and you correct the details, I feel like an idiot. Now, again, that's my own insecurity. And maybe I was embellishing the story a little bit because of my insecurity. But when you do that, I feel this way. And essentially, all I'm doing, I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm saying that's my junk. That came out of me. That's my insecurity. That's my jealousy. That's my hurt. That's my pain. But I just need you to know, as my spouse, when you do this, it stirs this up in me. And... And then here's how you respond when your spouse tells you that. You respond this way. You say, hey, thank you for letting me know that. And then, fellas, you know what you say after that? Here you go. You say this. You go. Got it? (laughs) Shall we all practice together? That's it. Because because if you're a man like I'm a man, I know what your your next reaction is going to tell them. Well, here's, no, 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 no. You shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way. See, there are no bad feelings, okay? And what they're doing when you have this conversation is, you're saying, hey, I'm kind of open, I'm peeling back the curtains of my heart because I want you to peer into what's going on in here. And so Gretchen will will say that to me, all right, when you blank, I feel this. And then I go, oh, wait, 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 time out, time out, time out. That's not how you should feel. Because um, I've taken in all the information, thank you for the information, and I've run it through my man grid, and I don't feel that way, therefore you shouldn't feel that way. And my intentions weren't for you to feel this way, therefore you shouldn't feel this way. Feel better? Thank you very much. All right, see you at the table. No! No! In fact, guys, when you try to do that, it's not what, it's not at all what we were called to do. And in my own marriage, I've never, ever, ever had Gretchen come to me and say, hey, this is how I feel. And I go, oh, baby, you shouldn't feel that way. Come on over to the whiteboard. See, if if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Therefore, you shouldn't feel that way. Shall we tarry off to the bedroom now? No. It never goes that way. Gretchen's never once going, golly, thank you so much for pointing out not only my external sin, but my internal sin. I didn't even know that I was feeling wrong. Thank you so much that God has put you in my life. Now, come on, young stag, to the hills of Beether. Never, ever, ever. In fact, she helped me a lot with this years ago when I was trying to tell her how to feel. Uh, 
She said, because I would, I would always talk about intentions. You know, well, I didn't mean for you to feel that way. Therefore, you shouldn't feel that way. And she said, it, she said, it would be like this. It would be like if I was standing in the road and you backed over my foot in your truck. And you ran over and it broke and it hurt. And I screamed out, ow, my foot. And you hopped out of the truck and said, what's wrong? I said, you broke my foot and it hurts. And I go, oh, yeah, but I didn't mean to. I didn't see you. She goes, go, oh, okay. Well, it feels great now. No. It will feel the exact same way. And when you can have that kind of open and honest conversation, what you are doing is you're inviting the Holy Spirit into his rightful place into your marriage to begin to heal those wounds. And you know what people that love each other do with that kind of information? They change their behavior so that their spouse doesn't, doesn't feel that way anymore. Because they're not trying to cultivate insecurity. They're trying to cultivate security in Christ. And so you begin to change your behavior for the sake of your spouse because a husband and wife are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's what they do. And so now that she's been disciplined by the, by the men at the gate, <clears throat> she does what every good Christian girl does. She goes and tells her friends. This is what verse 8 is. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. And look how her disciple groups respond. Ready? What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? In other words, this is a dude like every other dude. Just wretched, black-hearted, knock on the door, 12 o'clock at night, dripping wet, talking about baby beloved. What's wrong with that dude? And here's what's happening. Her friends are teeing her up to talk junk about her husband. And notice what she does. Even before they have reconciled, Even before they've reconciled, she speaks highly of her husband. Listen to me, wives. We live in a culture where it's like a sport to tear down your husband. I mean, think of one TV show where the husband is the hero. They're just a bunch of bumbling idiots. And and I'm telling you, and Christian women will get together and they'll just call it prayer requests. Well, we've got to pray for Todd. He is a loser. Dear God, we pray for the loser husband, Todd, in Jesus' name. Well, you ain't praying for Todd. You're really praying for you. And I don't know when we traded honor and respect for complaint, comparison, cynicism, and sarcasm. And so I'm just going to ask you, how do you talk about your husband? And how do you talk to your husband? Because look what she says about him. She says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. Ruddy means handsome. Distinguished among 10,000. That means if she would show up at a party with her girlfriends and they would say, which one's your husband? She would say, oh, the good-looking distinguished one. Is that how you speak about your husband? She goes on to say, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy. That means his hair. His hair is wavy, black as a raven. And some of you are like, Pastor, I can't say my husband's hair is wavy because it waved by like 20 years ago, all right? (laughs) Then you just got to come up with some other stuff. Be like, there he is. His head shines like the sun. Ain't it beautiful? (laughs) Whatever. She goes on to say, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies uh, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. This brother's kind of jacked, you know, he's on the workout program. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivories bedecked with sapphires. And again, some of you are like, yeah, but... My husband's body isn't polished ivory. It's more like moldy jello. It's kind of <laughs> hairy and jiggles around a little bit. Do you know that according to Ephesians 4.29, just because something's true doesn't need, mean you need to say it? Do you know that? that Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for the building up the needs of the hearer. And some of you, husbands and wives, you think just because it's true, then it's a free game to say. Not according to the scriptures, it's not. That you need to speak kindly about your spouse. That his arms are rod of gold. That his body is polished ivory. Verse 15. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like that of Lebanon. Choice as cedars. I mean, she compliments him specifically and physically. You know, you have an opportunity today when we go to the beach baptism and your husband pulls off his shirt. You'd be like, whoo, baby, like polished ivory. You know? Watch how he responds. Husbands, you could do a push-up too, though. I ain't going to lie. All right. And then here's what she says about him. His mouth is most sweet. You know what she's saying about him? That he always speaks so tenderly to me. His mouth is sweet. That, That he always speaks words of tenderness. 
that he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and he is my friend. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. Listen, the foundation of a great marriage is a great friendship. The foundation of a great marriage is a great friendship. And how do you talk about your friends? And I know some of you single guys, you think, my foundation of my marriage is going to be sex. <laughs> All right. Even if you are the biggest stud in the history of humankind, and you do it every day for an hour. See, the married people are like, <laughs> oh, got an hour. <laughs> what are you talking about an hour? All right. There's still, you got 23 hours a day. What you going to do with the rest of the time? What are you going to do now? We got to talk or something. You got the majority of your time together will be about building and establishing a friendship. You know how friends talk about each other? Do you know how powerful your words are? The Bible says that your tongue has the power of life and death. Do you know why my marriage is where it is right now? A big part of it is because for 14 years, I've been speaking life into this thing. And some of you, your marriage is on the rocks because you have been speaking death into your marriage. I'm telling you, husband, every husband in here, you are a prophet. What you say about your marriage will come true. You can speak life into your marriage. The Bible says careless words stab like a sword. Stab like a sword. It has nothing to do with intention. That if I were to walk in here with a sword, which I have a couple, and, and I were to just wave it around, but look at my sword and stick you with it, guess what? It hurts. And if I went, oh, I didn't mean to, it, it has no impact on the situation. And then if I were to pull the sword out and I went to the beach for baptism, you're still here doing stuff. And you could remember it all the days of your life. You're like, I remember. It was 1122, Sunday morning. That dude stabbed me with a sword. And you would have a scar. And it would take a long time for the wound to heal. And it would, the stabbing would happen in an instant. And when you're careless with your words, when you're careless with your words, regardless of intent, they can stab. And so you've got to speak, even in the midst of conflict. They haven't reconciled the conflict yet. They're still mad at each other right now. And this is how she's talking about him. And here's the thing. Here's a big reason why you shouldn't talk junk about your spouse. Is that you don't want your ears to hear your mouth say those things about your spouse. Because if your ears hear your mouth say that about your spouse, then your brain and your heart are going to believe what your ears heard your mouth say. And so you speak life so your ears tell your brain and your heart what they just heard is true. And I promise, over time, your feelings can catch up with the truth of that. And that's why she says, this is my beloved, and, he, and this is my friend. Do you know that um, you don't make love to people you don't like? And you don't like people you don't respect, and you don't respect people that you talk junk about. And so part of the reason your marriage is in the, in the can like it is right now, it, it comes back to your mouth and the words that you're speaking. At the end of this service today, many, many married couples need to come to the altar and look eyeball to eyeball and say, I am so sorry. I repent that uh, there were careless words. And, and I didn't mean them, but I'm taking full responsibility. I'm taking full responsibility for the pain that they have caused. And I am so sorry. And my careless words hurt you in a second. And so I'm going to commit from here on out that wise words will lead to healing. And so they speak life into this marriage. Chapter 6, verse 1. The friends ask her, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? In other words, when you fight, where do you go? Did he run off to the bar? Did he run off to the internet? Did he run off to the strip club? Is that what Solomon does? Listen to me. Even if you've been sinned against by your spouse, poor behavior on your spouse's part does not give you an excuse to sin. All right? She cuts you off and you'd be like, well, I guess I'll just go to a porn site. Your sin cannot be excused by poor behavior by your spouse. And that's essentially what they are asking. And so, in other words, does Solomon have character? And then in, in verse 2, she responds, my beloved has go down to his garden, to the beds of the spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. In other words, he's in the place where we met. I can trust him. He's a man of character. He's not running off some other place. He's going to go to the same place where we met. Remember back in chapter 2, they, um, they, they, they grazed their flocks together, and that's where they met. And then here's why she can say that, because of verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That their marriage is a covenant, and they have given themselves fully to one another. And their marriage is not a contract, so that if one gets done wrong, the other one says, oh, I'm going to retaliate. They said, no, 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 the two have become one. One plus one equals one. There's not me versus you anymore, it's just us. 
And so I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And so they go down to the lilies to find him. And here's what they find when they find Solomon. Here's what he says to her. He says, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my love. Tirzah was the most beautiful place in all of Israel. It would be like Hawaii. He's saying that your exterior is beautiful, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city. So he's complimenting her on the outside and the inside. He said, you're beautiful to look at and you're holy on the inside. And then he says this, verse 5. Turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me. You see, because her eyes are starting to puddle up as he's speaking life into this. She knows that he, she's done him wrong, and he knows that he's been selfish too. And so as he's complimenting her, she's looking right in his eyes, and he goes, hold on, hold on, don't look at me right now, don't look at me. It's too much for me to handle. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't want to just make out, I want to make up. So even in their marriage, sex is the dessert, it's not the appetizer. He's saying, I don't want to cover up some real relational work that we have to do by just making out. Now, we'll, make, we'll get to the make-out part. You will come next week. Woo, baby. Okay, it's going to happen again. But before that, he says, hey, I want to make sure our hearts are aligned here. And then, and then what he does, this is awesome. These next few lines, five and a half through seven, he's going to quote word for word what he told her on their honeymoon night. And if you weren't here last week to hear about all this, these are all compliments, I promise. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flocks of ewes. That have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. So why do you think he's quoting the same thing he said to her on their honeymoon night? Because he's saying, listen, I love you more now than I did the day I married you. Just because we have a little fight, a little conflict, we're going to resolve this by responding in love. And so you don't have to worry about our relationship. The foundation of our relationship is just as solid as it's ever been. And so that's what he's saying. Just like it was on our honeymoon night. Then you get to verse 8, which is very problematic. It says there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. I'm going to come back to that one in just a second so I can unpack it. Verse 9. My dove, my perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. He's saying, nobody else in the kingdom compares to you. And so wives, here's what your husband needs from you in conflict. He needs to know that you're on his team. You think he has what it takes. Husbands, here's what your wife needs to know from you in conflict. That that she is the only one for you. That nothing else on this whole planet compares to her. Second, only to your relationship with Jesus Christ is her. She's more important than your friends, than your money, than your job, than your hobbies. You can replace all those, but there's only one her. That's what he's saying. Then it says, the young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also. And they praised her. Verse 10. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Verse 11. I went down to the nut orchard and looked at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded. In other words, what what they're saying here is this conflict was actually an opportunity for not for us to draw lines in the sand, but for us to draw closer together. Did you know that when you begin to understand that you're not supposed to fight with your wife, but you're supposed to fight for her like Jesus fought for us, then the conflicts that you walk through are actually opportunities for y'all to be drawn closer together. And the reason that is, is you know when I know Gretchen loves me? It's not when we go on dates, because the atmosphere is so awesome. I mean, you know, like I tell you all the time, our favorite place to go is Three Forks. You go to Three Forks, and they, I mean, you walk in, they've got this little fire going on. You're like, oh, it's so awesome, and they play this music, and I dress, I wear khakis, all right? And uh, we go in, and I always get a little private room and, and, and spend way too much money, and the music's great, and the people come by and say hi, and you eat this steak, and it's just great. Well, man, you could love almost anybody in that kind of environment, all right? The times I know when my wife loves me is when we get a really good conflict and I have been a jerk. Then I wake up in the middle of the night and I look over at my beloved, my dove with her mouth open, just, uh, you know. (laughs) And she's still there. She didn't leave. She's not in another room or anything like that, and she's still by my side. It's those moments when I know that she didn't feel like loving me because I wasn't very lovable, but she chose, like Jesus chose to love us, to stick with me through thick or thin. You see how, that's how conflict can actually draw you closer to one another. Also, when you have those legit conversations like, hey babe, when you fill in the blank, I 
feel fill in the blank. What you're doing is you're inviting your spouse into some little nooks and crannies of your heart that they haven't been in yet. And that God can use that for new buds and new growth. And so that's what she means when she says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines abutted, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. And so he picks her up, he puts her in the chariot, and now they have reconciled, and they are heading off to the Sheraton to, to reconcile. And then everybody watching says this, Return, return, O Shulamite. That's important. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Here's what that means. That, that name, Shulamite, we never get, get her actual given name. But the people call her Shulamite. Shulamite is the female version of Solomon. So what they're saying is, oh, there they go. The two have become one. We can't tell where he ends and she begins. But that's Solomon and the Shulamite. It'd be like if you called me Joseph and Gretchen Josephina. There's Mr. and Miss Martin. That the, the two have become one. And what God has joined together, nothing can separate. And when you begin to understand that in your conflict, that it's not me versus you. You remember back to chapter 2, verse 15, where Solomon said, Catch for us the little foxes that are ruining our vineyard. See, so when you get into these conflicts and you say, Hey, babe, it's not me and you across from each other. Actually, come over here with me. It's me and you together, and we are against whatever this problem is. And we're going to root it out of our garden. We're going to get the foxes out of our garden. And so here is the point. And so when you're in a conflict with your spouse, you can be right or you can be married. You can be selfish or you can be married. There's a lot of selfish right people and you're not married anymore. They're not married anymore. And and our standard is Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth, he could have been right. But instead of being right, he decided to be the Savior. He decided to do whatever it takes To reconcile us unto the Father. He took responsibility for things that are not his fault. He paid a price that he did not owe. And when you are mutually submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ, then that's how you fight. You you don't fight with. But you fight for by responding in love. And your marriage is worth fighting for. And the key is to be more concerned about winning the heart of your spouse than winning the fight. I mean, in those moments where Gretchen is being less than ideal. And if I can just take a step back and think, oh, wow, God, this is an opportunity for me to love her like you love me. Because I know I've been less than ideal. I haven't responded the right way to you. And when I'm, being, when I'm not being the man God's called me to be to Gretchen, it's an opportunity for her to love me like Jesus loved her. And for God to, to raise up in her that Holy Spirit in her to love me. When you begin to get that, you don't fight with anymore. You start fighting for. Now, I want to jump back to chapter 8 as a big fat warning for your marriage. In, in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 8, it says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you, you know, if you've done Bible study before, Kind of the elephant in the room when you talk about Solomon being this awesome husband is this. Is that later in his life, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so what do you do with that? And so what happens is, is Solomon is responsible primarily for three books in the Bible. Um, for Song of Solomon, obviously. And he wrote that early in his life. He's really, really young. He just got married. You remember she said your hair is jet black. So they didn't have just for men yet. So he was just a young man. His hair hadn't turned gray. All right? And then he writes Ecclesiastes. He writes Ecclesiastes late in his life. And so at the end of his life, and he's wasted all of his money, and he's chased around a bunch of girls, and he's thrown these huge parties, and he's been the most successful human ever in the history of the world. And then his, his, his repentance and his confession is this, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless under the sun. And then throughout his life, you get, you get the book of Proverbs. And there are some times in Proverbs where you'll see this repentance where he says things like, Husbands, take joy in the wife of your youth. So the question then becomes, what went wrong? 
Solomon, how could you go from saying things to your wife like you are the only one born of your mom, you're everything I want, that I am my beloved and my beloved is mine, that my banner over you is love. How did you go from this picture-perfect marriage and wander away where you could have 700 wives and 300 concubines? What went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. In 1 Kings chapter 11... 1 Kings chapter 11, we find out what went wrong with Solomon. Listen to this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, and then it lists all these women that he loved. Verse 2. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Here's where it gets sad. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Can I just warn you about something? As good as your marriage might be, you walk away from Jesus and you could do all kind of terrible, atrocious things. And what Solomon did is he began to walk away from the Lord. That's what it says. And then it it, it put his marriage in a train wreck. And it gets worse than that. It says some of the, he, he began to worship some of the gods that his wives worship. And one of them was, was a goddess named Ashtara. She was a sex goddess. And so in his hometown, he built a temple to her. It was a big phallic symbol and invited in all these temple prostitutes. And it says that he worshiped her. And then also one of the gods that, that he worshiped was a god called Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he built a temple and he made sacrifice to the god Moloch. And the way you would sacrifice to the god Moloch, it was child sacrifice. You would burn babies alive. And you think, oh my goodness, who would do that? I'll tell you who would do that. Any person that would walk away from the Lord. That no matter how strong you think you are, I hope you hear this as a big fat warning to every single person in here, me included. That you walk away from the Lord and you are capable of doing things that you can't even imagine. Like having sex with people that are not your wife and killing babies. That's what he was doing. And it is a big warning. Because I'm telling you, Solomon was supposed to be the wisest man who had ever lived. He knew better. And he had this amazing wife. And then what does he do? He walks away. So you know what that means? Look, pride comes before the fall. The person that realizes that that you have the ability to do this, you're probably okay. It's the one that goes, not me, never. Oh, my goodness. So what do you do about it? Here's what you do for your marriage or your future marriage is you better stay close to Jesus. You better stay close to Jesus. You better, he, Jesus says it this way in John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That means you can't be a husband without Jesus. You can't be a wife without Jesus. I mean, you can learn some tips and tricks. Hey, when you, then I feel, you can do that. But that's just surface stuff. Because apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. But with him, all things are possible. So you got to abide in him. you got to stay close to him. you got to, for the sake of your marriage, you got to do the things that stir your affections for Jesus so that the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow and you can't manufacture love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can't manufacture faithfulness. What you do is you draw close to him and then faithfulness begins to pop out. You draw close to him and the fruit of the Spirit starts growing Starts being produced from the inside out and you become more patient. Not because you read a book on patience, but because Jesus lives in you. And when you stay close to him, you abide in him. He abides in you. And the more, you, the more time you spend with him, the more you become like him. The more the fruit of the spirit becomes a part of who you are. And the more well equipped you are to be the kind of husband or wife he has called you to be. So when you draw into him, I promise it draws you closer to one another. And for those of you, and your marriage is barely hanging on by a thread. And the only reason you're here with your spouse today is because you still kind of got the, the front up. You want everybody to think everything's okay and you know it's not okay. Listen, there's hope for you because there's hope found in Jesus Christ. And you can repent. And you can forgive. Not because that person deserves your forgiveness. They don't deserve your forgiveness. Sound familiar? Because you didn't deserve the forgiveness of Jesus. But because you have been forgiven much, you can forgive much. And reconciliation can happen in Jesus' name. And then the third thing about the fact that Solomon was a hypocrite is this. It does not change the authority of the word of God. 
that God inspired all kind of sinful men to write His very words. Like, oftentimes God speaks through sinners. You know? Because I'm the greatest sinner in the room. The book of Matthew was written by a murderous tax collector. All of the epistles in the New Testament were written by a guy that murdered Christians. Peter denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Like God's made a living out of using sinful people and speaking his words. It happens all the time. In fact, one time in the Old Testament, God spoke his word through a jackass. He still does it every weekend, okay? (laughs) This is how he does. And so it's sort of like if you went to the doctor and a big overweight doctor with a cigarette in his mouth said, you need to lose weight and quit smoking. Just because he's a hypocrite doesn't mean that his message is any less true. And so I thank God that he would inspire Solomon to give us this warning in verse 8. That if you walk away from the Lord, man, you, you and I could do some atrocious things. But then Jesus comes along in John 15 and says, but if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And apart from me, you can do nothing. But when you stay close to him, anything is possible. That means for those of you that have marriages just, I mean, on that solid rock of Jesus, then praise God. Continue to do the things that stir your affection for Him so that you can love one another like He has called you to love one another. And for those of you that are on the rocks and that you are fighting, then you fight for one another in the name of Jesus and quit fighting with one another. Because again, if you don't know Jesus, I don't know how to tell you to be married. Because He came to this earth... And we were his enemies. We had sinned against him. We had frustrated him. We had not responded the way that that he deserved because he's so merciful and gracious in pursuing us. And what did he do? He responded in love. That he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he said that we are to love one another just as he has loved us. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? If you don't know Jesus and today you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you realize that it's not by anything that you have done, but by what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection, that today you could receive forgiveness, be adopted into the family of God, that the Spirit of the Son would live in you if you're ready to do that and become a Christian today. For the very first time, raise your hand where you are and say, God, I can't do this from the outside in. My only hope is from the inside out and surrender your life to Jesus right now. If you've got your hand raised, you pray a very simple prayer. You just admit that you're a sinner. You believe in what Christ did for you on the cross. And you confess him as Lord. And the Bible says they're throwing a party in heaven for you. Because you were lost and now you're found. You were dead and now you are alive. Those of you with hands up, would you put them down? If you're married, if you just need prayer for your marriage, would you just be bold enough to just lift, lift your hand and say, I need a little help here. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I just pray for the folks that have lifted their hands just to say, God, here I am. I need your help in my marriage. God, I pray for the strong marriages that are rooted in you, God, that they would continuously stay focused on Jesus. God, I pray for the marriages that are hanging on by a thread. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a miraculous work. God, we know that you can fix things that are broken. We know that by your stripes we are healed. That includes our marriages. God, I pray for the spouse that's here without their husband or wife. Lord, I pray that they would continuously become more and more of who you've called them to be. And that sweetness and that kindness would draw them to repentance. And that regardless of how their spouse reacts, Lord, they would respond in love. God, we thank you that we can love one another because you first loved us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand as we close? Look, our response is probably the most important time of our whole service. Okay? And so we respond. We give you a number of ways to respond. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around. We respond by joining our voices together and singing. And we respond by coming to the altar. Some of you need to come to the altar as a couple. Confess, repent, forgive, and pray for one another right now. Some of you need to come to the altar and just praise God for what he has given you in the gift of your marriage. Whatever it is, let us respond.